because at that time I was seeing a lot of performances and uh, looking at a lot of art and um, generally spending a lot of time with people who had strong opinions about art. And um, one of the things that was consistently perturbing me was that I would have some experience like in a performance. And then afterwards, the first question that somebody would ask or that I would ask myself is, did I like it? And I was really bothered by the idea that I'd have this complex, multidimensional, nuanced experience that would then get collapsed onto a single valence dimension at the end of it. And I just objected to this notion that I had to choose whether I liked it or I didn't like it. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is someone very special. I worked in his lab for two years, and he really did a lot to form my own relationship with cognitive science. It actually, so it started back when I was an undergrad, and I went to the Cognitive Science Society conference in Berlin. I was uh, studying in, in Germany on a summer abroad program, and, and there was this professor there, and I was totally and utterly arrested by his approach to studying the mind. He was using these sophisticated computational models informed by AI to understand the cognitive processes underlying human thought. His name was Josh Tenenbaum, and I became obsessed with his work. So the, the following year, I went back to the CogSci Society Conference. This time it was in Montreal. And my express purpose then was to sort of you know, and insinuate myself into Josh's inner circle. And I approached him on the first morning of the conference and, you know, found a rare opportunity to, to get in there and talk to him. And he said, uh, okay, I have 15 minutes and, uh, you know, we can chat then. But, uh, you know, mostly that chat consisted of him expounding upon his ideas about, you know, how the mind is structured and, and how this structure develops throughout childhood. But then at the very end, right as we were wrapping up, he paused for a moment and he said, you know what, uh, I have this postdoc. He's really good. He just applied to faculty jobs at Berkeley, Harvard, and Columbia, and he got offers at all three. He will be starting a lab at Harvard next fall. His name, Sam Gershman. From then on, I made it my mission to end up in Sam's lab. The story, it, you know, honestly, it has a lot of twists and turns and, and, and stuff, but suffice to say that I pestered Sam for two straight years, basically reminding him via email of my existence and inquiring if he had any available research opportunities. But, you know, for, for two years, nothing happened. And then, one day, while I was living in Belgium, I was sitting in my underwear, I was watching Old Country for No Men, and I got an email. It was from none other than Sam Gershman, and the subject line was, still looking for a job, question mark. Uh, his lab manager had unexpectedly quit and he was looking for someone to fill the role in short order. And he knew that I was the kind of individual who was infrequently employed enough to, to be available. And so I started working in Sam's lab in spring 2016. I, I experienced a lot of ups and downs in those two years I worked for him. I, I learned a lot about what I liked and, and didn't like about research about what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do, 
to some extent, what I needed from a work environment and, and what I didn't. Uh, but at the end of the day, his general program of research, combining Bayesian models and reinforcement learning to understand the neural and computational basis of behavior, has influenced me more than any other single researcher has. And he also gave me a chance. He, uh, it, he gave me a chance to, that's, that's done a lot to, to help me get to where I am today. So for that, uh, I owe him an awful lot. Anyone who has spent time around Sam or even, you know, sort of taken a peek at his Google Scholar page can attest that he is pretty much the single most prolific individual in all of psychology. In his peak years of productivity at Harvard, it felt like he was publishing a number of papers in a year that other researchers could expect to publish in like a decade. And so in this conversation, one of the things that I really wanted to press on uh, and, you know, uh, he's always been a little bit coy about this line of questioning, um, you know, kind of preferring to keep the discussion about, you know, the finer points of like statistical distributions and inference problems. But I wanted to push a bit about his process and the way he thinks about producing his work. We also talk about cognitive science in general. So despite his pretty well-defined lane for, for formal research, he has an uncommon breadth as a scholar. He is interested in a lot, and uh, you know he's worked on a, a many different kinds of projects, including, as I allude to in the conversation, a series of video shorts, um, which are I, I don't know, shall we say, rather avant-garde in taste. So uh, we we went we went into a bit of, of cognitive science history, including Sam's favorite historical cognitive scientist, and you know what the overall enterprise of cognitive science should look like in general. Finally, uh, Sam recently published a book. It's called What Makes Us Smart, The Computational Logic of Human Cognition. We cover the overarching thesis of that book about the two organizing principles of human cognition. We explore the potential counter-arguments to his thesis there. And I ask him about what people who are already familiar with this work, uh, as well as those who aren't, can expect to get out of it. Anyway, this was a very special episode for me since it's with someone who has had such profound influence on my own trajectory, so I do hope you enjoy it. If you do, uh, I'd really appreciate if you consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. You can find it at codycommerce.substack.com. It is the best way to keep up with all my work as well as latest episodes of Cognitive Revolution. Uh, in my writing there, I try to make a deeper connection between our theoretical understanding of life as it's informed by cognitive science and psychology and our on-the-ground experience of, of life itself. So uh, please consider subscribing. That is codycommerce.substack.com. Anyway, thank you for listening. Without any further ado, here is Sam Hirschman. So the first question I usually like to ask is, is where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Connecticut, but I grew up mostly in Chicago. Yeah. And um, let's see, remind me, what are your, what are your parents do? Um, my parents, uh, my, well, my father uh, is a computer scientist, and um, my mother has had uh, many careers. Uh, right now, she's a clinical social worker. Yeah, you, um, this is... <laughs> sort of, um, you know, prefacing things a little bit prematurely, but you have this great line in the acknowledgments of your book, which is uh, your mother taught you how to write, your father taught you how to think, and your wife uh, taught you how to argue. <laughs> um, I love that. But um, 
Yeah. So, uh, uh, how did you get into psychology and cognitive science? I had some inkling about cognitive science, um, since I was a kid, partly because my father did his PhD working on artificial intelligence in, in the 1970s. And, um, so he kind of exposed some aspects of that, but, but not so much to psychology. Um, really my, my first kind of direct engagement with that was in college when I took a cognitive neuroscience course and that really just captured my imagination. And I tried to figure out ways that I could get involved in research and just read a lot. Yeah. Um, wasn't there a, I can't remember what this connection was to, to psychology, but didn't you, uh, once tell me a story about a summer you spent in Berlin working like on uh, a radio show. What was all that about again? <laughs> well, that, that didn't have any connection to psychology, but <laughs> I did spend a summer at the end of high school or, or towards the end of high school, um, working at a radio station in Berlin, mostly cause I just wanted to do something interesting for the summer. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. But I guess, uh, so I guess it's one thing to like be interested in cognitive science generally, but you've had a pretty specific and clear interest in a computational approach to, to cognitive science and the study of intelligence, the mind, that sort of stuff. When did that become sort of clear to you that that was, that was the kind of way that you wanted to approach the study of, of the mind? I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but at some point during college when I was just getting my bearings and what the different approaches are, um, I sort of figured out that all the action really was in computational approaches in the sense that it, it felt like of all the different ways to approach problems in this area, the computational approaches seemed like the right way to frame things, the right way to basically ask questions in a precise way and then try to answer them in a precise way. But the problem for me at that point was that I just was completely out to sea with these things. Like I, I just had no, nowhere to start. Um, and, um, there weren't that many classes for undergrads that would actually teach you to do that, at least at, at Columbia at the time. Um, so I was reading books and trying to implement things myself and mostly just kind of playing around and trying to learn things. Um, I remember reading some papers by Josh Tenenbaum and thinking these were really interesting, but also that I just had no clue what they were talking about. Um, that maybe one day I would figure out, uh, how to understand those papers and maybe do science like that. Um, and so really it was after college when I went to work at NYU uh, with Nathaniel Daw that I started really doing that kind of work and, and learning how to do it. Yeah. So what, um, I guess what, since you're, yeah, so sort of what you're saying is that there is this big, clearly the, the goal long-term was to be able to un understand the sort of mathematics and technical infrastructure underlying the computational approach. But, you know, as a sort of traditional psychology student, you don't necessarily get the, the requisite technical sort of chops to be able to do that. What, do you remember what you did start with to try and be able to, to sort of step-by-step -step conquer that? I read a bunch of computational neuroscience textbooks. Um, I remember reading the O'Reilly and Municata textbook, which came with 
this PDP++ software, uh, which I downloaded and, and ran on my computer, and I thought that was pretty awe-inspiring. Um, the, and then, um, I mean, during all that time, I, I was doing a lot of experimental research, and so I was trying to figure out ways in which I could try to um, bring to bear computational approaches to, to that research um, in various ways. Um, and as part of that process, I was, for one thing, learning how to program. I, I was learning um, basic, the basic mathematics that you need to do um, co computational modeling, like uh, probability theory and some linear algebra. I mean, I, I really didn't take any classes on any of this. So it was, it was just kind of picking stuff up as I went along. Um, I read machine learning textbooks and things like that. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, I guess at some point you did get a pretty solid grasp on it, uh, at least sort of between NYU and when you started grad school in Princeton, because you, um, your, your first sort of like major paper was context learning and extinction in 2011 with David Bly, um, who you work with at, at Columbia and, and Yal Niv, your, your supervisor. So, uh, my understanding is that you came into graduate school with that sort of project in mind, a pretty well uh, sort of established idea of what that was going to look like. And that turned out to be a really, you know, sort of influential paper and a, and a big sort of finding. And it married a lot of the things that you're, you're talking about there in terms of the experimental and computational approaches. So what is the sort of the genesis of that idea and how did you come to sort of pull that off? And also, you know, what is the sort of basic finding of that paper? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't want to overstate how much I understood going in. I mean, again, like so much of, of what I know now and the knowledge that I continue to acquire is just kind of learning stuff as I go along. So it, it certainly wasn't the case that I, I entered grad school um, with basically the, all the mathematical foundations <laughs> ready to go. And then I just had to like write this paper. Um, I had a kind of general, somewhat vague idea um, I was really interested in um, memory and the notion that there was a computational problem that had to be solved, specifically when do you update old memories or create new memories. Um, and the, the jumping off point for me really was a paper by Dave Reddish that had been published a few years earlier uh, with his colleagues in um, PsychReview. Um, where he took a rather different theoretical approach, but he was basically answering a similar question. Um, and at that time, <clears throat> I, I was very intrigued by these Bayesian non-parametric approaches um, to probabilistic modeling, uh, in which you, you could have uncertainty about um, the underlying structure of, um, of the latent variables that you're trying to model. So, so for example, if you're doing clustering, you might not know ahead of time how many clusters uh, are in the data, and you want to discover that from the data. And um, Bayesian nonparametrics provided a formalism for thinking about how you define a, a kind of infinite capacity prior over clusters. So, so a prior that might favor simpler clusterings, but had the capacity to um, capture arbitrarily uh, large number of clusters and to infer the number of clusters as, as data were observed. Um, and I thought that was an interesting 
metaphor for how memory might work. Um, and so um, my, my agenda going into grad school was to try to take those formalisms, some of which had already been applied to other areas of cognitive science and bring them to bear on this problem of, of memory formation versus modification. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's interesting. And, and, and so building off of that, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious to know one of the, uh, kind of like hallmarks from the outside perspective, looking at your career is you were working on so many different projects simultaneously. Was that always kind of the way that you worked or was it, you know, sort of like at that point you were focusing on one thing, it sort of, you know, worked well. And then you sort of split off from that or was it always kind of like this massive you know parallel you know lots of different things going on i i really just can't help myself i mean <laughs> when lightning strikes i just want to <laughs> take advantage of the moment and so I, yeah. i've always tried to organize and you just live in a like thunderstorm of <laughs> yeah right so I, I just I just try to organize my research life in such a way that if i have some idea that i'm excited about I want to try to drop everything or some things at least and, and go after it. Um, and that's what kind of makes research exciting for me. And so I wouldn't want to get rid of that because then it would feel really boring to me. So is there an organizational logic to it in like any sort of like concrete sense? Like Weiji Ma has like a massive, you know, Excel sheet with like, oh, here's all the projects I'm working. Here's the status. All that. Is there any... Is there anything that you can point to like that? Or is it just like, here's the thing, I'm doing it. And then, oh, here's another thing, I'm doing it. And just dive from sort of inspiration to inspiration. Well, I mean, it's not totally chaotic. I'd say <laughs> that I'm a fairly organized person. And so it's not like I just kind of terminate all the projects I'm working on and then um, never go back to them. It's, it's more just a very dynamic process of, um, time allocation. Um, but I, I, somewhere in my head is organ are, is an organization of all these different projects, but I, I guess, are you talking about a kind of logistical perspective of like, how do I keep track of things? Or is it more like conceptually, are these all related to each other in some way? Well, I, I want to try and unpack both strands and I kind of have, you know, like, oh, I want to see a little bit about, about both of them, but I guess I'm interested in the logistic one uh, off, mm -hmm. off the bat. Like, uh, you keep, you've always kept your email inbox as close to zero as possible, like that sort of thing. And, and I think, uh, everyone, uh, there's not a single person on the planet who doesn't think that you are always on top of your, your stuff as, as much as is humanly possible. And even sometimes more than is humanly possible. Uh, so is it, is there, yeah, like, is, is there a specific logistic, logistical sort of strategy that you use, or is it just sort of naturally how, how things come for you? Um, I, 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 I'm not sure I have a general answer to that question, but I, I guess I don't, um, I want, I want to kind of, when, when things come into my purview, right, then I want to basically deal with them as immediately as possible. Um, and that seems like on its own, a fairly um, effective logistical principle. Like if I just, if, if I, if something, if there's something I need to do, um, I know that if I put it off, then it's just going to become for whatever reason, progressively harder to do it. So I'm, I'm going to leave it 
in my inbox looking uh, scoldingly at me <laughs> until I deal with it. Um, and I find that sufficiently aversive that I just try to deal with it as immediately as I can. So that's definitely something that I took away from observing your work habits from the years that I worked for you, uh, was uh-huh. that sort of strategy of if something comes in, just deal with it right away as best you can and minimize the number of things you put off to do the time. Cause you're never going to be less busy than you are now. You're always, you're always busy with something. There's always something going, going on. And so, yeah, I think the natural human instinct is to sort of be like, well, I'll have more time to deal with this tomorrow because, well, right now I've got this other thing that I'm, I'm supposed to be working on and everything like that. And yeah. uh, I, I think mean, maybe you, yeah. you know, putting my cognitive scientist hat on, you could say that um, if you, that basically spending a lot of cognitive effort trying to find the optimal time allocation is potentially wasted effort because if you just do a kind of first in first out type approach, then you don't have to devote cognitive effort to scheduling and you just devote your cognitive effort to doing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think, so that definitely seems like part of it. The other thing that, that occurs to me about your, your process is that you seem to have very low switching costs between tasks. I think, I think a lot of other people would sort of feel that like, well, if I'm doing this and then I'm going to transition to this, or I've got an email or I've got this product, I'm working on this paper. Now I'm working on this paper. There's kind of like a lag time to, to move between those. Whereas, you know, anyone who's worked for you has the, the, you know, of the seniors, like you're working on this thing. And then like milliseconds later, you're 100% in, in on that. And I think that's, that's a pretty unique part of the, the, the process as well. I mean, honestly, I, I would prefer to just devote more concentrated time to um, one thing instead of switching between things all the time. But I just think that that kind of comes with the territory of being a professor and having to have meetings with different people all stacked together. Um, I mean, I, I guess maybe one thing that works in my favor is that I'm easily bored. And so um, I, it's just there's a low threshold for me wanting to switch to something else. What about time of day? Are there certain things that you do at specific times or, you know, is, is there any sort of optimization like that? Um, or is it literally just, you know, uh, whatever comes in at the time, deal with it as quickly as possible? Yeah, it's sort of the latter. I mean, I don't have the luxury of doing a lot of temporal optimization because my time is dictated a lot by my kids um, and, and then also just a s- schedule of meetings when I go into work. So I sort of have these, air, these small slivers of time during the day when I just try to do whatever is, the, I think is the most, most immediately needs attention basically. No. Uh, yeah, no, that, I think, I think that makes sense. I guess, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's just interesting to ask you about these things because it's definitely a point of speculation amongst your your colleagues and your your students and that sort of stuff. One popular theory is that uh, you're actually an AI sent from the future to slowly teach humans <laughs> how artificial intelligence is supposed to work. So I don't know if there's any uh, if if that's part of your parameters. You're not allowed to reveal that fact. No comment. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, that's uh, that's just interesting. Uh, so I want to, 
I guess I want to kind of explore the scope of your work and the way you, you've, you've, you've thought about it, um, especially having, you know, published your, your book this year and, and, and received tenure this year. Uh, maybe you could think of that as a milestone or, you know, I guess I'm just interested to see how you, how you think of it. But um, I guess the, the place that I kind of want to start with this is, so your work is, you know, the, the foundation of it, of course, is, is computational. It's very technical. But your personal interest and your sort of scholarship as an individual is, is also incredibly humanistic. So, um, you know, I remember back in the day, uh, for, for months, uh, for a while, you had a, a copy of Robert Burton's 1621 Anatomy of Melancholy on your desk. And your, your book is strewn with references to literature and philosophy and intellectual history and all that sort of stuff. You play piano. I know there's a, a little bit of poetry in there from time to time. Uh, uh, so how, I guess, how do you conceptualize these two modes of, of understanding human behavior? How do they play off each other? And how do you think that kind of informs the approach to, to cognitive science that, you, that you've taken? Well, I, when I went to college, I didn't necessarily think I was going to do science at all. I thought that maybe I would go into the humanities. And I think in some sense, I became interested in cognitive science precisely because it seemed to be the meeting point of all these disciplines that I was interested in. That in, in some sense, you couldn't understand how cognition worked unless you took a, a really synthetic view um, of all these different strands of thought. Um, so that, that, that's what attracted me to it. Um, and I still think that's true. I think that, um, cognitive science is really enriched by looking beyond psychology and neuroscience to philosophy and, um, economics and linguistics and, and yeah, even the humanities. So are there any, so I get that as a general principle. Are there any specific examples of ways in which you feel like that's manifested in your work, especially, you know, some of your more recent, like single authored papers, perhaps that take a kind of, they're less, oh, here's this experiment. Here's a very concrete, um, and sort of individualized finding and more here, here's a kind of, you know, a broader scope way of thinking about some mechanism that we've, we've been talking about for a long time. I guess maybe just to take the most recent thing, I've been very interested in the biology of memory recently. And, um, that kind of came about in an unexpected way where one day, um, this was before all the, the shutdowns, uh, Jeremy Gunawardena came into my office. It, he's a um, professor in the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard. And um, I never met him before. And this wasn't a scheduled meeting, but he came in and he started telling me about evidence of learning in, in single organisms. And my first response was like, oh, I don't really have time to think about this, but it seems kind of intriguing. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more interesting it became to me. Um, and we ended up starting a kind of discussion group, which is still going. And um, I, I realized it, it was this moment where I realized that this um, question, which at first looked very narrow, like can single cells learn, actually tapped into a much broader space of ideas. And that space kept getting broader the more I thought about it until it kind of started consuming everything around me. Um, so for example, um, it, it occurred to me that 
if single cells can learn, then that seemed to imply something important about um, how learning system learning systems in general could might might be able to work um, beyond the sort of paradigm of uh, associative learning that has dominated our understanding of learning for so long. Um, right. Obviously, a single cell doesn't have a synapse, so it can't do any kind of synaptic plasticity. Um, and then, moreover, the kinds of mechanisms that these single-celled organisms might use to learn um, could be conserved in multicellular organisms. Um, and, and that spawned a line of thinking about how would this work in a multicellular organism, possibly in combination with synaptic plasticity. And then as I was thinking more about this, it, it became clear to me that this was connected in, in a intimate way to other things that I was working on that were superficially completely different about um, um, how people might be able to learn to infer, that is to treat inference as itself a learning problem where you could you could think about an inference engine that was approximate and parameterized in some way and you could uh, optimize those parameters as a function of experience um, and and that th these alternative mechanisms for the biology of memory might actually be ways of um, uh, implementing this kind of learning to infer architecture um, so anyway that, that's just an example of where these starting with kind of an arcane corner of uh, molecular biology and cellular biology um, ended up connecting to uh, a wide range of other questions in the literature. So it's stemming from a kind of openness to anything. In this case, a slightly reluctant openness, uh, given that you were initially skeptical of, of uh, the practicality of, of, of you know concerning yourself with these things. But yeah, no the you kind of operate under the hypothesis that anything could generate a potentially important insight into these questions of long-standing historical importance does that I'm, sound not, I'm not sure about anything right but but I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for obscure and unpopular ideas yeah because I just there's something in my makeup that makes me kind of allergic to doing what everybody else is doing so if someone comes to me with something that seems so implausible, so <laughs> out there, like th there just has to be something to it, or at least I have to th put a little bit of my, my cycles into it. Um, um, otherwise, otherwise I would, I'm just going to be floating downstream and doing the same things that everybody else is doing. Hey, Cody here. So as I've mentioned on the show before, I am graduating from my PhD program pretty soon here, hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least a semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, 
what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes starting from my first interview over two years ago and I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and, and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, what I was interested in, and how that's all changed. And I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind-the-scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes in January, then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed, in which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influence their thinking, and so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. That will be coming out throughout January 2022. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out toward my next phase, so I really do appreciate the support. If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version, it helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now back to the show. And, and part of that, how that connects to the sort of you know, what I'm calling the sort of like broader humanistic understanding is that there's kind of a shared understanding among cognitive scientists, which is, you know, the roughly speaking, the, the cognitive science literature papers about cognitive scientific prog problems. And so one way of transcending the sort of normal, you know, protocol on, on, on what's happening and what people are doing there is to just look at things that have nothing to do with cognitive science or that are, that are from a, you know, sort of different discipline, discipline, different, you know, way of viewing things, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. by the way, you, you, uh, you mentioned that you were thinking about doing the humanities undergraduate. What would, would you have been a novelist? What would you have done? <laughs> Well, I don't think you can major in novel writing. But uh, let's be honest, that's what you were, that's what you were going to do, right? That was... No, no. I, I thought maybe I would study history. I, I really had no clue. I mean, I, I was interested in a lot of things. So um, I was just, I just showed up there and picked some classes that seemed interesting to me. I mean, I really just had no clue. Um, uh, how approximately how many screenplays slash, you know, sort of summary, conceptual summaries of novels did you did you draft as an undergraduate slash graduate student? Um, I mean, I wasn't. N is greater than or equal to five, six. You know, like like we're we're talking a non negligible number here, right? I, I I wasn't writing any novels, but I was doing a lot of other stuff as an undergrad. Um, I mean, I was making movies and writing plays and composing music for dance performances and stuff like that. Um, 
Are those movies still up on the internet somewhere? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I haven't checked recently. Uh, it's been a while since I looked for them, but uh, you know, I'm, I won't put any pointers to those. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want that tarnishing your scholarly uh, career. With, yeah, um, right. I mean, I, I, um, I have no shame in my, I, I was very exuberant as a 18 year old. I think um, it's super fascinating to see uh, the kind of stuff that your mind came up with when it was engaging in that sort of more open ended artistic, you know, sort of stuff, uh, you know, versus what you're able to sort of corral all that creative energy towards, you know, doing in, in cognitive science. Yeah, I think it's a useful point of juxtaposition, but um uh, anyway, so uh, here's another random question. Who's your favorite historical cognitive scientist? When you say historical cognitive scientist, do you mean a cognitive scientist that lived a long time ago? Or yeah, like sp- like probably someone who's dead, I think is what I mean. Like you, you can feel free to pick, you know, a candidate or any, anything there. Um, gosh, I don't know. I, I it's It's weird to pick. Favorites of among dead cognitive scientists. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think that I think um, for sheer sort of provocative vigor, I might go with Jerry Fodor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying that I endorse everything that he argued, but I don't think Jerry Fodor even endorses everything. Jerry yeah, I, I just think that you know. I, I just I like that kind of pugilistic spirit that he embodied, um, and um, I, 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 you know, I, I wish that we had more kind of more of those sorts of arguments these days. I feel like it's it's kind of dissipated a little bit. People don't like arguing with each other in quite the same way anymore. Yeah. So, like his claim that there is a specific innate concept for something like carburetor or something like that, Mm -hmm. something to that effect, which is Mm -hmm. at face value, an absurd claim. And then him sort of being like, but no, no, no. Okay. But if you follow this line of argument, then that implies that there is, uh, that, that sort of conceptual apparatus could exist. And that's sort of, that's, that's part of the same part of you that's interested in the, Oh, so single celled organisms can like (laughs) learn shit and whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, it's also something about, um, I, I admire people who um, are so robustly contrarian that they're just willing to kind of fly in the face of everybody's disapproval um, to argue for what they think is the correct hypothesis. Um, so, I, and I, I mean, I still, I, I still talk fairly regularly to, to Randy Galstall, who is another person in, in that tradition. And um, by the way. Speaking of pugilistic vigor, I'll mention right here that actually my previous guest on Cognitive Revolution was, in fact, Randy Gallistel. So if you want to hear all about the ideas that he has brought to the table that have made other people, particularly neuroscientists, upset, then uh, I recommend checking out that episode. You know, maybe in some ways this is kind of a bad influence on me because it it makes me stick my neck out in ways that would be smarter not to. Um, but... Um, on the other hand, you know, it it just seems to me that living my at least living my intellectual life with a little bit of of risk in that way is um, more entertaining, at least. That's definitely something that I've noticed among several great 
cognitive scientists, I guess the ones that come to mind are Josh Tenenbaum and Noam Chomsky. They operate under this, basically, they hold this belief that every single person on the planet is worth arguing with and trying to attempt to bring over to your position. Whether it's an undergraduate who literally just read their first cognitive science paper the day before, or the most eminent person in the field. There's sort of this operating assumption or like, you know, this this deep, deeply held belief that's arguing for a strong point of view and trying to bring people slightly further away from whatever they, wherever they are and closer to where that is, is, is worth um, doing. And I, and I see that also in, in Jerry photo and, and uh, I, yeah, I like, I think that's part of the, the scheme that you're describing as well. But can I just clarify one thing? I'm, I'm not, I don't speak for any of those other people, but um, for me, um, the reason to adopt a really strong position is not because it's sort of my position and I want to bring people over to it. I see um, rhetorical and sort of almost didactic value in adopting positions that are stronger than you even might personally believe um, because they stake out a position that if you can kind of crystallize it sufficiently uh, allows other potentially more reasonable positions to be uh, produced in relationship to that one. In other words, I see, particularly when it comes to models, I don't see models as, as literal descriptive statements of how the world works or how cognition works or whatever. It, the models really, when they're good, are tools for thinking. And they're part of a intellectual dialectic that will eventually produce better models, right? Which are better tools for thinking about some problem domain. Um, but not, and, and of course, along the way, you'll produce models that are, are better descriptively, but um, I don't really see that um, descriptive goal as really the primary goal of modeling, at least for me. And so that's why I'm willing to make arguments that are stronger than, um, that that are stronger than I than I would personally advocate it. It's just, I just think in general we have to approach our our theoretical um, arguments with a sense of humility and um, um, you know not not believe them too literally, right? Treat them more as part of, of as sort of a conversation piece as opposed to a literal statement of the world about the world. So, kind of what you're saying is that your model of modeling is that. So, so one model of modeling would be, I'm going to try and construct the model that most closely corresponds to reality and say, oh, I found the, like, here's what reality looks like. And then a second way of sort of thinking about it is I'm going to construct models that represent two different strategies or however many strategies and, you know, two different assumptions. And we're going to see how far we can get operating purely from those assumptions, those biases, those strategies. And then by sort of juxtaposing those together, we can see, oh, well, this is how far you get with just this, but you miss out on this, which the other one can, can give you. And that gives you a much, a potentially more nuanced position, especially when those models are, you know, created by parties that are motivated to, you know, sort of like, here is the position that I'm taking. I'm going to do my best to represent that. And uh, like try and take that to its logical extreme, 
and be very motivated to to get as far with that one set of assumptions as I can. And you're saying that's right. the kind of the back and forth that, that you think gives us the the most nuanced kind of insight. Right. Yeah. I mean, th- that's the approach that will produce not specific models, but spaces of models where the axes of the, that space are conceptually insightful so that we can then with it, we, we can then sort of think about the, the structure of that space as opposed to doing point to point comparisons between individual models. Yeah. So um, having sort of gone through some of that, I want to like touch back on some of what we were talking about with the logistics of productivity. Another thing that like sort of strikes me when you talk about things is, I don't know if, if I want to call it goal directed, but like the answer to things matters to you desperately, which it does to all scientists some degree, but there's like a level of devotion to wanting to, to like not necessarily come to a conclusion because I, I, I doubt that you would put it in such like concrete terms, but to get to some sort of point of, 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 of progress and that sort of stuff is very, there's something very motivating for you uh, about that, that you have in spades, I think drives, you know, is, is part of where that thunderstorm of, of, of ideas and inspiration sort of comes from, you know? Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, that also, I, I didn't mention that when I started thinking about single cell learning, at some point, I brought my thinking to the point, well, I have to now do experiments on paramecia somehow. And, and, and once I got that into my head, I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I, I had to go find somebody who had paramecia. Now, not somebody who was studying paramecia because there was nobody studying paramecia at Harvard. But, they, but Florian Engert's lab did have paramecia around because those were fish food. And so I basically asked if I could borrow their fish food and do experiments <laughs> on them. Uh, and I spent a year doing that. Now I'll probably go back to it. Um, Do you have to long. construct like a little, you know, like Skinner box for like a paramecium, like a little rat maze, you know, sort of like something like that. I mean, not not exact, not exactly that, but yes, I, I made a little um, classical conditioning setup for paramecium. Huh. Um, I'm tempted to to go down that rabbit hole, but I, I want to <laughs> um, set that aside for a second and ask you more directly. So how in your own words, do you kind of conceptualize your own research program? And to what extent do you sort of think of it as a, an enterprise with overarching coherence versus to what extent is it kind of, you know, here's a series of piecemeal individual findings that are kind of have a shared premise and, and you know, um, overlapping approaches to how they discover. How do you think about all that? Um, what, what does that look like to you, especially, you know, now, like what we were talking about in the context of, you know, having summarized a lot of your work, um, via your book and, and, you know, having more flexibility post tenure. I, I wouldn't, um, I, I wouldn't overstate the coherence of my research program, but there are certainly recurring themes and, and th- those themes I do try to organize uh, in my book, although I actually don't talk about my own research in the book that much. It felt a little bit too egotistical to me, but um, I, I, I talk about those themes uh, in, dis- in discussion of many other people's work. Um, and 
essentially, well, I don't know if we want to, do we want to talk about the book now or, or, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So the motivating puzzle of the book, which is part of the motivating puzzle for some of my research, um, is a certain kind of duality in how we've thought about human intelligence for many years. So on the one hand, if you walk into a bookstore and look at books on psychology, you'll find lots of books attesting in one way or another to the stupidity of human intelligence, the frailty and proneness to error, um, biases and blind spots and so on. Um, then on the other hand, uh, if you look in the computational cognitive science literature, you'll find many testaments to the near optimality and rationality of humans, um, where you, you, you'll find many papers that have the word optimal in the title, optimal learning, optimal decision-making, optimal perception, and so on. Um, so how can we be so stupid and so smart at the same time? That seems like a puzzle. And the overarching thesis of the book, um, and I would say it's an overarching thesis for um, some of my research, is that uh, intelligence is not possible without error. Um, and that thesis is cashed out in, in, in two ways. Um, one has to do with um, limited data, and the other has to do with limited computational power. Um, so I'll start with the, the problem of limited data. So um, much of what we know or believe about the world is acquired through uh, inductive reasoning. So what is inductive reasoning? Well, we, we can distinguish this from deduction. Like if I hear a syllogism like all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates um, is mortal, the, the, the um, conclusion is logically valid. It's deductively valid, which means that um, it has to be true if the premises are true, okay? Um, but a lot of our knowledge is not like that. It doesn't have that kind of deductive um, validity in which as long as the premises are true, um, it can never be disproved. Um, in the regime of inductive reasoning, um, the, the, the potential conclusions don't follow logically from, from the premises, um, but the premises can provide some um, evidential support for particular conclusions or hypotheses. Um, but th those conclusions can always be reversed later if more data come in. Um, and the basic problem for any kind of um, inductive reasoning system is um, how can you be secure, relatively secure in your knowledge? Um, and there are various theorems that say in different ways that learning is impossible without inductive bias. So inductive bias is this really critical concept that um, a learning system, before it's observed any data, can have preferences for some hypotheses over others. Um, and those inductive biases are important because without inductive biases, um, 
the space of possibilities is too unconstrained. Um, and so, and uh, you'll never be able to arrive at um, the correct answer or, or, or reasonably strong belief in the correct answer unless you start off with some inductive biases. Um, uh, it's a bit like this Bertrand Russell quote that a mind perpetually open is a mind perpetually vacant. Um, and uh, and one, so one consequence of inductive bias is that you're biased. Um, in the face of a, a limited data, you're going to sometimes infer um, hypotheses that are incorrect. But that's actually a signature of a, of a correctly functioning inductive reasoning system. Um, so so the, the, the important point there is that um, constraints on your data um, and the necessity of using inductive biases translates into particular patterns of error. But just because you're making mistakes doesn't mean you're, you're um, behaving irrationally. Right? You're actually behaving rationally from the perspective of uh, an optimal inductive reasoning system. So that's the first point. And then the second So point, let me let me just make sure I yeah, get uh, the first yeah. the first one. Is. So basically um you're saying that you might look at bias, you might look at error and say, "Oh, well that's a sign that a, a you know, a system for intelligence is operating suboptimally or incorrectly." But no, in fact, really the only true alternative to that is not the absence of error, but actually just, you know, not having any inductive bias at all, which basically means that you can't make sense of anything. You have to have inductive bias to make sense. You have to have some sort of a priori hypotheses. You have to have some sort of, before you observe anything, some sense of what you're going to observe. Um, otherwise, you're just not going to be able to make sense of the kind of messy you know, things that we encounter in the world and are trying to make sense of cognitively. Well, just to be clear, like depending on what you mean by make sense of, you, you could still make sense in the sen sense that you make inferences about the world. But um, your inferences might be so weak in the absence of an inductive bias that they're um, not going to be useful for adaptive behavior. Great. Um, and so that's principle number one. And number two? So number two has to do with limited computation. Um, our brains are finite computational devices, they, they have limits just like any other computational device, limits on both um, storage and how, um, and, and energy. And um, that means that certain kinds of um, optimal solutions are unattainable given those resource constraints. And um, if you look at what kinds of solutions are attainable given the resource constraints? These are going to be approximate solutions. And by virtue of their approximation, they're going to produce certain kinds of errors. Um, but that's, again, those are, those are errors that are inevitable um, in the context of a, of a correctly functioning system in the sense that it, it's correctly functioning in the sense that it's doing the best with what it can, um, with what it has at its disposal. Um, and so I talk about, for example, um, errors that arise due to randomness, right? So why would there be randomness in a, in a computing system? Well, it, actually, that's a good way to, to construct resource-efficient algorithms um, uh, that, are, that will yield approximate solutions that, that are provably close to the correct answer, right? But, and yet will still produce errors. And those errors are discernible in, in human behavior, for example. Um, 
So, so really, the, the, the whole book is organized around looking at examples where, on the surface, people are doing some something that seems manifestly stupid. But if you look more closely into the logic of the problem that they're trying to solve, you can see that um, they're either bringing some kind of inductive bias to bear on this problem, or they're uh, trying to solve it approximately um, given some limited resource. Yeah, so that and, that... and that and those models produce the kind of behavior that people actually exhibit. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, I've definitely heard, you know, versions of that story throughout your, your, your research throughout, throughout the years. And, and it makes a lot of sense to me, the sort of idea that, well, you have to have inductive constraints on the inferences you're making. And when you look at how inferences are made, like when you actually make a system make an inference... Um, it, you can't do the whole Bayesian optimal thing. You have to approximate it, and therefore there's going to be um, noise introduction. And so making sense of human cognition in that way makes a ton of sense. And so I'm kind of curious, um, for people who, I guess, aren't familiar with your work or sympathetic to your work, or not, I, like, as you said, it's not your work. It's sort of a, it's a sort of scheme of, of work and that sort of stuff. But what do you think people will take what do you, what do people take the biggest um, you know sort of issue with in that line of argument? What do they find disagreeable, or what is the sort of alternative uh, that other people sort of put forward? Yeah, well, the the biggest criticism of this kind of approach is that it's all a bunch of just so stories um, and various kind of Panglossian mythologizing. Um, you know, like, well, this is the best of possible worlds, you know, the best of possible brains, um, and people are optimal, and we're going to therefore try to uh, back out whatever assumptions we need in order to make people look optimal. Um, and the alternative is that um, people aren't doing anything of the sort, uh, uh, but rather they have this toolbox of heuristics that they use, um, which were not derived from optimality principles, um, but maybe we're still selected for um, by evolution because they're still useful even if they're not optimal. Um, and there's a sort of gray area between these perspectives because um, in some cases you can show that some of these heuristics can be derived as um, optimal solutions under, for example, some kind of resource constraint or some kind of inductive bias. And people have done that, and, and I've, I've done some work like that as well. So um, I don't see those as being intractably, um, it, it being in uh, intractable op opposition to one another. So how, yeah, so for this brand of kind of computationalism, you know, sort of saying here's this germinating kind of, you know, core of Bayes' rule, reinforcement learning, some really just sort of foundational computational principles. How far do you think that program gets us to where we want to go in the sort of long-term goal of cognitive science and understanding the mind? Is that, is, is our long-term goal just a playing out from those core things, or is there some big piece of the puzzle that we haven't gotten to yet or uncovered. I'm not sure. I, I mean, the, the contrarian in me, it, 
sort of feels like I shouldn't discount the possibility that there's some major piece that's missing. But on the other hand, the reason that I've gravitated towards what you might consider fairly conventional theoretical framework is because in some sense, that is the description of the problem, the computational problem that people are facing, right? They're facing essentially, the brain is facing a set of statistical decision problems all the time. And so um, that just seems like, like a, a generally powerful way to analyze those problems. Um, and then within the, within the space of that kind of formalism, actually, there's just this huge universe of different sets of assumptions about um, people's priors, people's representations, and approximation algorithms, and so on. Okay. Yeah. No. I, I guess. I guess. Um, yeah. Like it's 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 a it's a la it's it's a layered sort of thing. That's um, you know not being too devoted to to Mars levels or anything like that. But you have. I mean, like. Like you said, the problem people are trying to solve is essentially the structure of, of Bayes' rule. Um, and uh, there's all sorts of, you know, layers of questions to, to un unpack that. But uh, I guess that, that makes a lot of sense for me. I do retain a little bit of uh, hope. I do set aside some probability mass for heretofore uncovered uh, uh, paradigms. But uh, yeah, I guess we should. We should all do that. The other, the other thing that I kind of want to ask you is, is that sort of the opposite of the question that I asked a couple minutes ago, which is, so for people who are familiar with this line of argumentation and are like fairly well acquainted with, with, with this sort of stuff and sympathetic to this approach, what do you hope they will get from, uh, you know, what you've, what you've put together in the book? I don't know. It kind of depends how much of it they already know. Um, you know, the book is not for everybody. Um, Most books aren't. But, <laughs> right. So, so I, I really tried to cover a pretty broad um, range of topics in the book. Um, so I'm hoping that um, even fairly seasoned researchers will find something that they didn't already know there. Yeah. Um, no, it's definitely a good collection of of uh of the material my my favorite is um so one of my it's actually one of this is you know this chapter is based on one of my favorite psychology papers of all time which is your how to never be wrong i fucking love that paper um i think that like in terms of just a simple concept um that has like this really sophisticated um you know sort of math and theory and even philosophy behind it that can explain a huge range of phenomena so can you just say a little bit about what the basic concept is there, uh, and you know, sum summarize that and what it what it what it explains. Right. So the the question that um, that that chapter starts with is um, why are people so resistant to updating their beliefs? Because anybody. If, if, I, if I tell someone, you know, look, people are optimal statistical reasoners, well, you can point to lots of examples where people seem to um, be very robust in the face of disconfirmation, uh, and, and you can point to lots of examples um, in, in contemporary politics, for example. Um, the, and so is that just a flagrant violation of probabilistic reasoning, or um, is there something to it, right? Is there a way that you can kind of accommodate those phenomena uh, in the framework of uh, probabilistic reasoning? Um, and my argument is basically that you can, at least under some conditions, 
Um, and the basic, the, the basic jumping off point is something that, that philosophers of science have been familiar with for many years, which is this notion of an auxiliary hypothesis. And, and auxiliary hypotheses are invoked by scientists all the time, um, both to argue for something, a particular hypothesis, but also to argue against particular hypotheses. Um, so the auxiliary hypotheses are um, hypotheses that you make um, about the world or wh whatever it is that you're studying um, that are not your central hypothesis. So they're not the, the, the hypothesis that you're trying to, um, to prove or disprove, but um, they're, they're critical extra pieces of the explanatory machinery. Um, for example, uh, assumptions about measurement process. So for example, when Galileo was um, looking at the moon through his telescope, not everybody believed the images that came out of the, out of the telescope. Why? Because um, th that technology was pretty new and also many people couldn't make telescopes um, uh, with the same degree of accuracy as Galileo and also people didn't totally understand all the optics. and. Um, and so they had to make some additional assumptions um, that intervened between um, the, the image that you see through the telescope and the thing on the other side of the telescope that you're imaging. Um, and those assumptions were really critical um, to ascertaining the validity of the conclusions that you drew from those images about the thing that you were imaging. Um, um, and so that's what, one of the reasons why Galileo's statements about, you know, um, uh, pockmarks on the moon and so on uh, were not immediately accepted by by other observers, even people who had access to telescopes. Um, so another version of this that I really like is, um, so if you take an example of a core belief as like, God exists, that's my core belief, then an example of an auxiliary hypothesis is like an, a literalist interpretation of Genesis, where God created the world in seven days. But then if I come along and I try and I, and I prove to you that evolution is the case and that for sure happened and there's, you know, gazillions of years, uh, the, the world actually came to come to its modern you know, form. Uh, instead of denying your belief in God, what you'll say is, oh, actually, I'm going to modify my auxiliary hypothesis. You know, um, instead of literally thinking that the world was created in seven days, it's like, well, you know, God hadn't created the sun and the moon yet, so a day is not really a thing. So maybe a day metaphorically means, you know, a million years or whatever. And so therefore, I still retain my belief in God, even though, um, you know, like something ostensibly seems, you know, contradictory to that is, is, is there. That seems like a really powerful explanatory tool. Right. I mean, there are creationists who believe that God created the fossil record to basically confound disbelievers. Which is uh, very clever of him, uh, or her. But uh, Sam, I want to let you go here in a couple minutes, but right before that, I do want to ask you, what are three books that have uh, really impacted the way you, you've thought or, or, or influenced your thinking or, or, or moved you in a, in a significant way? Do you want me to just list the books or? Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about them. You know, what are what comes what comes to mind, and what is the sort of backstory behind what? Um, yeah, uh, s stuck out to you about them. Yeah, um, well, well, since we were talking about my rambunctious college days, uh, I would reference two books that really shaped my thinking in college. Um, one of them uh, was by the experimental composer John Cage. It's a book called Silence. Um, and 
it made a big impression on me because at that time I was seeing a lot of performances and uh, looking at a lot of art and um, generally spending a lot of time with people who had strong opinions about art. And um, one of the things that was consistently perturbing me was that I would have some experience like in a performance. And then afterwards, the first question that somebody would ask or that I would ask myself is, did I like it? And I was really bothered by the idea that I'd have this complex, multidimensional, nuanced experience that would then get collapsed onto a single valence dimension at the end of it. And I just objected to this notion that I had to choose whether I liked it or I didn't like it. Um, and I found Cage's writing really refreshing in that respect because he had found um, a beautifully poetic way of kind of moving past the dichotomy of good and bad um, and trying to embrace as much of experience as possible um, inside a kind of artistic lens is the way that I interpreted it. It's sort of like art is not a natural kind. It's a, it's a way of looking at the world. And from that perspective, the, the scope of art is limitless. It's basically um, whatever you can encompass within your uh, artistic perspective. And um, I still find that really inspiring. Um, the other book is quite different. Uh, it's the, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And um, that book just really blew me away because it just um, shattered any illusions that I had about the linearity of science um, sort of progressing um, step by step uh, towards greater acquisition of truth. Um, and, it, and it pictured science as basically a sequence of punctuated jumps between different ways of looking at the world. And so I guess in that sense, it, 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 it in a strangely dovetails with Cage's writing where um, there's a, a strong emphasis on the, on the sort of subjective frame of reference. Um, for a third book, I, I was really thinking about this since you prompted me about it yesterday, and it's it's hard to pick. But um, I I um, have always been partial to novels of ideas, so novels where um, the, the centerpiece of the action plays out not in, not primarily in terms of social or physical events, but but in terms of mental events, um, and it's hard to to pick just one um, one novel of ideas. I, I was thinking back to you know, the older traditions that I, I mean, I, I I love some of the novels, for example, of, of Thomas Mann or, or Dostoevsky, which are good examples of novels of ideas. And and then later on, like um, Thomas Bernhard and Borges and Calvino are all are all good examples of this. I I, I think that the most recent ones that I just uh, felt really exhilarated by um, were um, quite different from each other. One was um, Cixin Lu's uh, science fiction, um, particularly the, the trilogy of, of novels called The uh, Three-Body Problem. And then very different from that are, are Rachel Cusk's novels, um, recent novels. Um, so sorry, that wasn't limited to three, but there you go. 
That's uh, perfect. No, that uh, that's a fantastic selection. Um, yeah, you know, it, um, one of your Harvard colleagues over in the English department, uh, uh, Luke Manand, he wrote a great book published this year uh, called The Free World, which is two, your ter- first two um, uh, books that you chose are sort of quintessential Cold War intellectual phenomena. That, that book's all about basically how so much of our you know, concepts change that time. Um, hmm. I'll check it out. Like it, it definitely draws a uh, a line between lots of stuff, um, Cage and Kun included. But uh, anyway, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It was great to um, uh, you know be able to ask you some of these questions and and to to hear about you know some of your perspectives. So thank you so much. Sure. All right. Thank you, Cody. Take See care. You. Bye. That was my conversation with Sam Gershman. Thank you for listening. You know, it, <laughs> it's sort of funny. Uh, I've obviously spent a lot of time talking with Sam over the years, but I wasn't sure how this conversation was going to go. So first of all, it didn't really, it didn't exactly begin with a warm catch-up. <laughs> the initial conversation was something like this. Hey, Sam. Hey, Cody. Uh, you got tenure, huh? Uh, yeah, earlier this year. Congrats. What are you up to? Oh, I'm finally in my PhD. Time flies. And that was the that was the end of the catch-up. So uh but, but yeah, as as for the interview, you know, basically so yeah, so this is kind of how it went down for me. Basically, after the first 10 minutes, it occurred to me that Sam almost never answers questions directly. So for the first few questions, I would kind of like ask him something, and he would give me, you know, kind of like not much to go on. And then I'd be like, hmm, he must not want to really talk about that, so I guess I'll move on. And then what I kind of realized after the initial period was like, okay, um, here's, here's what I have to do. Basically, I have to summarize what he said while sort of adding in my own specula- speculation edit- editorializing. And then if I did that, he'd be like, oh, well, actually, wait, no. Uh, so that's not quite right. And then he'd give me, you know, sort of the more detailed explanation. And... Uh, I guess kind of thinking about this, you know, it actually helped me get a little bit more purchase on why I felt emotionally distant from him sometimes as an advisor. And uh, because in some ways, and there's no doubt about this, you couldn't ask for more from an advisor. He was eminently available. His office door was always open and you could just pop in and ask him a question about anything. Even he'd he'd look at your like fucking code and shit. Uh, It's like similarly, you could like send him an email and expect to like get a response in like, eight seconds. But I always got the feeling that whenever I was asking about something that's not directly about a research project, he kind of like answers like as quickly as possible in an effort to be done with these sort of shenanigans as as soon as he can be. And yeah, I don't know. I struggled with that as, yeah. So this time it was different because I had him as a captive audience. Uh, But, you know, when I was in his lab... I think it was because I looked up to him so much that I honestly struggled with that distance. Um, so it was fun. I mean, something like that to be able to kind of come full circle on, on that, on that whole thing in this conversation. Anyway, if you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. You can find that at codycommerce.substack.com. It is the best way to keep up with all the latest from cognitive revolution. I'd also really appreciate it if you'd consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes It is 
actually a huge help to the show since those numbers are one of the biggest factors that podcast platforms consider in presenting the show to to new audiences. So thank you for listening. I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.